Hello everybody, I'm Matt Mikuchi and you are listening to the Jazz Ace Podcast. Hello everybody, Jazz is Online Editor Matt Mikucci here, welcoming you to a new episode of our podcast series of conversations with some of the most amazing artists on the jazz and creative music scene today, a series that we simply like to call The Jazz Is Podcast, and it's brought to you in conjunction with Jazz Is Vinyl Club, a series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz Is editors, and that is an absolute must for lovers of jazz and vinyl alike. With a distinguished career as a composer, arranger and orchestrator, Lenny Moore's musical genius has left an indelible mark across multiple media, including video games, commercials, television and film. His latest album, Mentors, pays tribute to the guiding lights in his artistic journey and fulfills a dream of recording a big band sensation. But that's not all. We'll also tap into Moore's rich and award-winning work in video game scoring and harness his vast knowledge as a technology and applied composition professor at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music to unravel the latest tech trends in music, including the ever-expanding role of artificial intelligence. So, fire up an audio teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Jazzy's Podcast. Hi, Lenny. Welcome to the Jazz's podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you on. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I like to do for this podcast series is I kind of like to break the proverbial ice by asking the artists I speak with uh, to share a memory with us of when their passion in music began, you know, from early life or childhood, you know, anything like that, that you, when you think back to it, even you realize maybe that's where it all started from. That's when I started to think that I'd like to start this career in music eventually. As far as uh, childhood memory, I can think of a uh, a couple. One specifically, I think I was four or five years old and my parents got me and my older sister piano lessons. And I was creating kind of from an early age. So I was about four or five and I remember sitting down with my mom at the piano and me sort of playing notes on the piano and telling, and she was writing the notation down for me. And I was like, I want that note. And I, you know, I played something. I, That's the note I want. And, uh, and then she'd be writing it down. Uh, yeah, that's like a really early memory. I don't know if it's true, <laughs> but right. I know that memory is kind of stuck in my brain forever. Well, right, because I was reading also that you started composing from a very early age as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's correct. I was probably about 11 years old and I was writing big band charts in middle school and things like that. And uh, I just remember... Uh, the English teacher at the time, because I was writing big, he we were supposed to be reading books and I'd be in the back of the class writing big band charts and he was not very happy about that. All right. So big band was very much, you know, part of that vision then, that early vision that you had. <laughs> yeah, I was way, way into jazz and uh, I played in, you know, like the orchestra and things like that. And mm -hmm. I'd played brass instruments uh, all the way through my first year of college at Berkeley College of Music. Uh, but I picked up in high school, I picked up the electric bass, which ended up being, 
you know, my main acts that I just loved playing that. I would play that all day. So you say you were way into jazz in uh, those early years. Who would have been some of your favorite artists back then? Early on, like like middle school to high school would have been, my father used to listen to big band, uh, 1930s, 1940s big band stuff. So we're talking Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, uh, those kinds of those kinds of artists, and then as I got a little older, I started getting into a couple of different jazz artists. I remember Chick Corea early albums uh, back then, so that would have been albums like The Leprechaun and a particular song called Humpty Dumpty, which is a really uh, a really fun up tempo kind of a, a swing thing. The um, other jazz stuff that I remember listening to, I was way into, in high school, I was way into Don Ellis, who, if people aren't familiar with him, he was a trumpet player. He loved uh, the rhythms of uh, music uh, from uh, India, uh, you, know, you know, near China, India. And uh, the thing that I remember about that is he loved odd time signatures and, and some of those kinds of rhythms. And I just fell in love with that. And there was a few few influences of those odd time kinds of rhythms on the album. Right. And throughout your life, you also had the opportunity of having some great teachers, right? Yeah. Some amazing teachers. Some were just very, you know, short kinds of experiences. Uh, Toshiko Akiyoshi would be one. Uh, she uh, was the composer in residence at a uh, songwriting composing workshop that there's an organization called Centrum in Port Townsend, Washington, which was near where I grew up. And they had these summer workshops uh, where it's like two weeks just working on creating music. And uh, for some reason, only three people signed up for the jazz composing thing with her. So it was a lot of one-on-one time. And she was uh, somebody that kind of laid a really amazing kind of philosophical approach to writing music uh, on me when I was probably 16 years old. And that was super influential. And that was a situation where she was looking at a chart that I had been preparing to get performed later in the week. It was a big band chart and she was pointing at a section of the sax section saying, Hey, why did you write this particular figure here? And me being 16, I uh, answered like a typical 16 year old and said, I don't know. And, and she pushed me on it and she's like, no, no, no. Why? And then uh, I said, no, cause I like it. And she said, good enough and followed that up with there has to be a reason why something that you write is on the page and then there also has to be a reason why it stays on the page which i think speaks to there's the inspirational part of the writing process where you're in the moment and you're just creating and putting stuff down and then there is the editing revision process where you're making final decisions on things and so that was just amazing advice that was like an epiphany for me it was just like uh, something that kind of speaks to uh the way one of the one of the things that really speaks to the way i write all the time that there's always something that's very intentional about it and uh determined in the way that i write and hence the the last track on the album is called intentionality and that's definitely dedicated to toshiko right exactly the album mentors kind of uh we'll talk about it more a little bit uh, later on, but since we're sure. on the topic specifically of teaching, I know that you yourself teach. And so this is something that I kind of, I'm interested in finding out. What do you feel is the role 
of a music educator in, let's say, the year 2023? I think that the role is pretty similar to the way that a, the role's always been for, and this also applies to mentorship, which is a component of the album. The, uh, I'm an adjunct professor at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music in the Technology and Applied Composition Department. And our department is focused on how we use technology in the art practice of composing for media. So the role for me as an educator, it, it, which I, you know, when I talk about it being sort of a time honored tradition is that of mentorship, that of being somebody to uh, let younger generations know that they're not alone. It's something that is uh, all the things that they're going through as far as doubts about their abilities or, or confidence about their abilities. Uh, that's reinforced by people that have been there before them. And that's, to me, one of the aspects of it. Uh, the other aspect of education is, you know, for, for students that don't know how to do something is finding a way to uh, teach them a particular concept in a manner that they can grasp. So, you know, some people get very caught up in words and terminology and things like that. And that's not necessarily my style. My style is, do you understand the concepts in your own brain, however your brain works? So for me, that's part of the aspect of what education is. And, and, and for me, modern times is just about doing it well and staying abreast of whatever is going on technologically as well as going on in the craft of the art of making music. Right, because when you talk about technology, that's just constantly evolving. It, it can be very challenging to keep up with uh, the new trends and so on and so forth. Yeah, and I've been involved with technology since the beginning of music technology. Uh, I've graduated from Berklee College of Music in 1983, and at that time, Pro Tools didn't exist, DAWs didn't exist, Music software didn't exist. Uh, if it, you know, it was more like there was a little bit of electronic music where people would program stuff at universities, but there wasn't a lot as far as that. Notation software didn't exist. None of that stuff. Uh, so me being a super nerd, uh, I've always been passionate about computers. And as soon as that stuff came out, I was on top of it and, and learning it. So early versions of notation software, early versions of sequencing software, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the one thing that is part of this conversation about how things are constantly shifting and changing is that software and technology becomes obsolete fairly quickly within years. You know, whatever was the hot piece of software one year, three or five years later is replaced by something that's disruptive or, or just works better. And that, that's part of it. And I'm always looking for ways to improve how my workflow is going. So how to speed up things that take a long time to do. Uh, and, you know, like an example of this is, as the technological thing is, I use uh, a Mimu glove. It's spelled M-I hyphen M-U. And it is a gesture control glove that hooks up to your computer and uh, it sends MIDI information, which is the controller information to play notes and to uh, change sounds. And uh, so I use it when I'm recording because it speeds up uh, my ability to perform into my computer as best as I possibly can. Uh, 
Um, wow. And if anybody's interested in checking out that kind of technology is super interesting. And it was developed by a recording artist um, named Imogen Heap, who's a UK artist who's had quite a few uh, hit songs on the radio in the last 10, 15 years. And uh, so she hired a bunch of smart MIT folks to, to build the glove and then they, they put it out commercially and folks like Ariana Grande uh, use this in their art practice. And, you know, so I'm always looking for really interesting devices and things that help me do what I do uh, better. I also wanted to bring up something else that's, uh, you know, a big part of your career uh, because you've been active in various sectors. But uh, one of them that I wanted to discuss with you that I don't get to discuss very often is your work with video games. Uh, How did that begin? It began a little over 20 years ago, maybe closer to 25 years ago. There was a game, um, as a European game developer, and they were looking for, uh, in their exact words, uh, they had posted a notice saying they're looking for a Hollywood composer to score an orchestral score for their video game. And I had emailed them and said, hey, pick me. And they uh, asked for a demo, and I sent them a bunch of stuff that I had done in film, which were soundtrack that involved orchestras and choirs. Uh, I think one of the things that helped was I had done a, uh, with a, a couple of composers, three of us that were composing on this documentary called Trinity and Beyond, which was a documentary on the atom bomb development program in the United States. And so there's this big orchestra choir stuff that was very dramatic. And uh, I think at that time, most other composers and games were using um, just the general MIDI on a sound card on PCs for how they would play orchestral music and and produce it. So I, I had a live orchestra, a live choir, and I think that was one of the things that got me in early on. And uh, it's uh, that particular score. It's a game called Outcast, um, and it was a company called Appeal, and that started me off, and it got a lot of notoriety because it was one of the early fully orchestral scores in video games. And then since then, I've done a lot of great work. I've been involved with the Halo Anniversary uh, games that came out like uh, Halo uh, Combat Evolved Anniversary and Halo 2 Anniversary, as well as the Master Chief Collection. And uh, I was basically like the principal orchestrator on that. A bunch of other games uh, for different companies like Microsoft and Valve. Uh, one of the fun things that has a little bit of a jazz influence is um, I did a, what they call a, a guest artist pack for Counter-Strike Global Offensive. And it was sort of like a very funky, jazzy kind of a thing that I thought would be fun uh, for the Counter-Strike players. And that's been a fan favorite. They really like how light and fun it is. And especially after you've, you know, killed all your enemies and you're dancing on their corpses and there's this really happy music playing. Uh, so it's uh, sort of a contrast, but it's uh, something that I think the fans really like, but yeah, I, I try and in, inject some of my jazz influences in my writing, even some of the orchestral writing, some of the star Wars kinds of cues that I've written for different games have uh, definitely some, some jazz chords in them.
The track you are hearing is from Mentors by Lenny Moore, available now. We'll resume our conversation momentarily, but first, I wanted to remind you that if you love jazz and vinyl, you should check out Jazz A's Vinyl Club, a new series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz A's editors and featuring some of the most exciting jazz artists from yesterday and today that we cover in the print version of Jazz A's, jazzays.com and these Jazz A's podcasts. Go to jazzays.com and click on Join Vinyl Club. And now... Back to our conversation with Lenny Moore. Let's talk about your latest album, Mentors. We mentioned it a little little bit earlier, but uh, I want to get into it a bit more. And we'll talk about the process itself and the way in which it was recorded, because I think, like I said, it's quite fascinating. But I first wanted to ask you about uh, the idea behind it, the inspiration behind the album, which from the title may seem self-explanatory, but uh, can you tell us a little bit more about it when you started conceiving of this idea of sort of paying tribute to the mentors who have inspired you throughout the years? Yeah, it was probably about, I think, five years ago that I started thinking about this. I was just thinking about people that were really influential uh, for me, people who were mentors in my creative life and just started thinking about them. And that sort of was the central thought behind what the album or the conception of the album was going to be. It was going to be a tribute to all these, all these people. And the idea would be, I'd be, you know, just thinking about who these people were. There may be certain qualities or things that I learned from them uh, that I th- wanted to play around with in my writing and I wanted it to be a big band album because I've been wanting to write a big band album for a long time. And it's sort of a, you know, sort of a bucket list kind of an item. Uh, but because of my, my love for jazz and playing it for so many years, uh, it was just something that I felt like I needed to do. Uh, and it was just, you know, uh, looking at different mentors in my life. And some of these were teachers I had early in my development um, in junior high, high school, um, some, you know, two or three college professors that are, or, uh, composers in residence, uh, that, that I was fortunate enough to kind of work with and, and learn from. Yeah. So that, that kind of in a nutshell is, is what the catharsis of it was. So who are the mentors that you pay tribute to? And also, uh, in what way do they, influence or inspire the compositions on this album because you know they're all original compositions yeah these are all original compositions and arrangements uh so manic which is the opening track on the album is dedicated to weather report and steps ahead and that includes you know like uh yeah just there are a couple of crossover folks so like peter erskine who's you know an amazing jazz drummer he was in both of those bands and he actually played on the album and uh, it, he was definitely somebody that was very inspiring for me um, as far as what a great musician is. Um, uh, also, things about whether important steps I had, uh, the writing, the, the compositions by both of, those, both of those bands and the composers included in those bands uh, were definitely um, inspirational as far as like the way I approached that particular tune. Mardine Effect is uh, named uh, after Arif Martin, who was a record producer for Atlantic Records for a bunch of years. And Arif was 
just an amazing record producer. Uh, you were ta- the first couple of Nora Jones albums, uh, Aretha Franklin, Chaka Khan, just a ton of great artists that he produced. And, uh, I learned just so much. I, I got to meet him a few times and, and he was just amazing to watch when he was in the studio mixing and, uh, and, and just the way he interacted with people. Uh, as a producer. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a couple of shades. Some of it's about the writing. Some of it is about the music producer kind of components. Some of it is about playing. Uh, Essence is named after Michael Gibbs uh, or dedicated to Michael Gibbs. And Michael was a composer in residence at Berkeley College of Music when I was attending there. And Smoke and Mirrors is dedicated to Don Grolnick. Planetary Misalignment is dedicated to David Mash, who is my theory professor and I also took private instruction with him on composition while I was at Berkeley. Uh, Two Peas in a Pot is dedicated to Nick and Andy. Nick Manson and Andy Suzuki are, are lifelong friends of mine. I've known them since I was in high school. And they play on the album. Andy's an amazing saxophone player. He also plays Amazing Flute, which is on that track. And then Nick is just a great keyboard player. The Kid is dedicated to Ken Krantz, who was my high school music theory composition uh, teacher. And he also had this really cool um, jazz choir uh, and he wrote his own material and stuff like that. And he was very encouraging for me. And then intentionality is Toshiko Akiyoshi. So recording a big band album was always, as we talked about throughout this conversation, an ambition of yours. But uh, the way in which this album came to the fore is quite interesting because I guess you, was it a, you know, the way I understand it is you, basically came across this stumbling block that we call COVID. Uh, but was it a stumbling block or was it an opportunity that kind of opened up new ways to think of how can I make this happen? Okay, if the glass is half full, <laughs> it was an opportunity. <laughs> uh, uh, I had been doing some remote recording previously because, you know, if you want a great musician, sometimes they're just busy. Uh, so they can't like show up in a studio on a particular time. But, uh, quite a few of my musician performing friends had home studios and w- could easily record at home when they, you know, like after hours, you know, they may have done two, three hour sessions during the day and then they get home at night and, and just after dinner, like, you know, put on their slippers and their jammies and then, you know, lay down a track or two. Uh, and, uh, so I'd done that kind of thing before, but when COVID hit, the original idea of the album was to get 20 people together in a studio for two days and record it, uh, which was the normal way. You know, once, once it got into high gear where people were getting sick, uh, the professional recording scene in Los Angeles, as an example, they just shut down all the studios. They couldn't even do like distance, you know, having everybody six to eight feet apart, uh, kinds of recordings, uh, just cause it was, uh, too virulent at the time. Uh, so it became really clear. I had to rethink how I was going to put the album together and I decided I would just do it remotely and then just tried to check in with everybody, uh, and see, you know, who was up for it. And, uh, I started with Peter Erskine. He has a really nice uh, studio at, at his home. And it is all set up for him to record his drums beautifully. And I kind of felt like, you know, part of it was organizational stuff. Like, you know, how do you remote record a jazz album? Because the thing that's missing is 
the eye contact that happens and feeling the presence of the other musicians around you. So what we needed was sort of a foundation. And I thought starting with Peter and he would be playing to my demos. And so he laid down his drum tracks. Then we had the basses and the guitars and keyboards. So we had the rhythm section first. And then we started adding like the lead horn players. So it'd be lead alto, lead trumpet, lead trombone. And then everybody else would sort of follow the leader as far as the recording process. So some of it is organizational. And and then it was up to me as the producer to take all the audio tracks that they were sending me and then go into Pro Tools and, you know, edit in a way, not necessarily fixing things more than just, you know, occasionally nudging a few things here and there, trimming a few things so that it would feel like it was in the pocket in the way that people would perform when they can actually see each other. You know, and some of it is just simple stuff. Like if we have the lead trumpet player and they're holding a note when they cut off the note and stop playing the note, you know, the second trumpet player might play a little longer than the lead trumpet player when they were recording it. And sometimes I just trim it back so that it would be a little cleaner and a little tighter. Uh, and just like little, little edits like that. Um, so it was a lot of, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff definitely takes longer to do a remote recorded album. And it was a trickier puzzle to figure out on the mix side of things, how to get it so that everybody sounded like they were in the same room in the same space. Wow. That's uh, it's an amazing, uh, yeah, process. And, you know, I guess once again, it goes back to what we were talking about, the way that technology can sort of aid the music making process and, uh, and all of that, uh, which kind of uh, inspires this next question, which with which maybe, uh, we will be closing this, uh, conversation of ours, uh, because, you know, you have referred to yourself as a, as a quote unquote nerd. <laughs> so I can't resist, but ask you a lot of the conversations around any of the creative arts right now revolve around the future and how it's going to be impacted by AI technology. Uh, you know, we're kind of lurking in the dark as far as that's concerned. I don't know much about it. I'm trying to understand it myself, but it's, it's very hard. But I just wanted to, to know what you thought of this whole thing. And yeah, what, what's your thought on, uh, where this is going to lead us to? Yeah. This, uh, issue with AI in the art world. And that's not just in music, it's in the fine art world. And we're dealing with it with the, the actors and the right and screenwriters right now with their strike. So there's, there's a lot of concern about it. And for me, it's, it's not that interesting, to be honest. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I know a decent amount of what programming software is about. AI, for those that want to know a little bit more in just a very brief sort of description, what, a, what these AI uh, tools like ChatGPT do is it's a piece of software that sort of samples from a bunch of sources. In the case of something like ChatGPT, it, it scans the internet for content, like written content, and then, you know, through whatever the algorithms are, the other, the programming of what the AI has to do. It's, it's basically, it, it's like a prioritization system where it kind of looks for things based on the prompt that it gets from people that try and use the tool. And 
Uh, we there's you know issues with things like in academia. You know, if somebody's trying to do a research paper and they use ChatGPT and they just tell ChatGPT, "Hey, write me a sophomore college level research paper on this subject with this angle," and the ChatGPT spews something out. You know, there's a lot of professors that I see looking at the results, and there's actually fabrications where it's citing sources that don't exist. You know, it's making stuff up, and it's just because it's a computer program with the fallacies of uh, the errors that can happen when you're trying to program stuff. So for me, AI on the creative side is similar. It's never going to duplicate what an artist does and the choices that we make because AI doesn't actually make choices. It's just running uh, prioritized algorithms, basically trying to like say what, you know, what's the best solution to the answer to the prompt that I've been given. Um, so if it's in music, if somebody says, hey, write a big band uh, original composition that is influenced by Michael Gibbs, it's not going to know what to do. Right. <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to give me something from Drake. And yeah. <laughs> You know, you know, it's going to do whatever it does. And it's, it's just like, it's not going to get it. Yeah, I've heard some really horrible examples of, you know, make a song in the style of the Beatles. And then it's like the, <laughs> it's the horrible thing. Yeah, totally. So, so, you know, and it, it, it will get more improved over time, but it still doesn't make choices. And for me, that's the most important part of any sort of artistic expression is, you know, we have a wealth of knowledge of our craft and then we make individual choices. And since we're each wired very uniquely, uh, there's no duplication of that. There's no way to kind of, for somebody to, uh, to write exactly the way that I, that I create in the same way that there's no way for me to like write like John Williams I can understand how John Williams approaches things, but I'm still going to make some interesting choices that are uniquely my own. And there may be some things that sort of give a nod to somebody like John Williams or Don Grolnick, if we're talking about, you know, jazz composers or Joe Zawinul or Jaco Pastorius or any of those. Um, but Jaco was Jaco, Joe Zawinul was Joe Zawinul, Don Grolnick was Don Grolnick, and I'm me. So I don't think AI is going to affect that in any substantial way. Um, audiences, if they want something mediocre, they may be interested in AI for a while, but I think eventually people are going to get tired of it and it'll fall out of fashion. Thank you very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, it's been wonderful talking with you. I really appreciate it. And uh, definitely check out the album. And yes. if you want to see the really nerdy side of me, check out my YouTube channel. Let's just type in Lenny Moore channel or something like that on youtube because uh, i get in the weeds of how i made the album uh there's a, you know a little more information there as well as on my website so i appreciate the opportunity to speak with everybody I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Lenny Moore and I remind you that his new album Mentors 
is available now. And if you love jazz and vinyl, be sure to check out our Jazz A's Vinyl Club. Join the club and we will send you four premium limited edition color vinyl albums mailed directly to you. Just go to jazzays.com and click on Join Vinyl Club for more. And as music from Lenny Moore's Mentors plays us out, I encourage you to also keep an eye out for more Jazz's podcasts, our print magazine, including our recently released Fall 2023 issue celebrating women in jazz, and other great content available to you on our regularly updated website, jazzes.com. And if you like what you see, well, you can always subscribe for more. Till the next time, this is Matt Mikuchi signing off. See you soon. Mm-hmm.